Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week in Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories in science and politics. The lead story today is, well, the world is shocked by the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. Some people are saying that this could be the largest military disruption in Europe since World War II, taking place right in the center of Europe between the West and Russia. Russia, in fact, put its weapons on nuclear alert. We've not seen that like that. And this could cause a major realignment, perhaps a new Cold War. On one hand, we have the West and NATO. On the other hand, perhaps a reinvigorated Russia. And so, well, to be fair, Vladimir Putin has his position. His position is that, well, Russia fears for its safety because NATO is expanding. And perhaps if the Ukraine joins NATO, NATO would be right up to its border. And how would the United States feel if Mexico, if Mexico suddenly became a Russian puppet? How would the United States react to Russia having its troops right next to the border of Texas? Well, I personally think that instead of the superpowers defining the fate of the Ukrainian people, I believe in the right of self-determination, that the people of the Ukraine should decide for themselves what to do, where their destiny belongs, rather than having the superpowers define where the Ukrainian government should go. Well, we'll say a few more things about that. Also, Chernobyl is in the news because of the fact that Russian forces have seized the Chernobyl reactor with a huge stockpile of nuclear waste. And then the question is, are the troops, the green troops that are now in charge of Chernobyl, now the security forces have fled, are they up to the task of being able to make sure that that reactor is under control? You see, that reactor accident never terminated. It's ongoing, believe it or not. Every time it rains, for example, water seeps into the soil, moderates the neutrons underground, and you can see that radiation levels rise, rise at Chernobyl. In other words, the core, the core is still melting. The core will be radioactive perhaps for centuries, millennia. And the question is, is it stable? We don't know. Also, news from outer space. In Australia, we have a radio telescope that scientists have aimed at the center of the Milky Way galaxy, which is near the constellation Sagittarius. They scanned 144 stars looking for signs of intelligent life. Well, so far, they found nothing. But the question is, why? The galaxy should be teeming with intelligent life forms. How come we don't pick up anything? Well, we'll talk about that in today's exploration. And we'll also say a few things about, well, when you die, the, do you see your life history whiz by you? People that have survived from near-death experiences say that they leave their body, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and they see their whole life's memory flash in front of them. Is that true? Well, it turns out that a new study done at the University of Toronto says, well, maybe for the first time in history, 
they were able to brain scan somebody at the moment of death. This had never happened before. This person had a heart attack during a routine investigation. He was put in a brain scan and it recorded the moment that he died. So I'll say a few things about what did these scientists find at the moment of death. And also, I'd like to dedicate today's show to the memory of Henrietta Leavitt, an astronomer who is unsung, but who measured the universe. That's right. She had an astronomical breakthrough when she was able to measure the distance to the faraway stars. And that led to the expanding universe theory and the Big Bang theory about the origin of the universe itself. So we'll say a few things about the question, how do you measure the universe? How do you tell the distance to a star when the star could be very bright and far away or very dim and very close? They're very confusing. Well, Henrietta Leavitt was this unsung astronomer who measured the universe. And then lastly, we'll say a few things about the coronavirus. Is it time to throw away your masks? Well, I don't think so. But some people are saying with some justification that things are winding down. And unless, unless we have a new mutation, there could be better times ahead. Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. The lead story today and the lead story around the world is the question of the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. This is the largest deployment of the military in world history since World War II, taking place right in the heart of Europe. Russia has already placed its weapons on nuclear alert. When was the last time that happened? And some people are saying this could be the harbinger of a new Cold War. A new Cold War with a new realignment of powers. On one hand, we have the West, but on the other hand, perhaps a reinvigorated Russia, maybe China. We don't know for sure. Sadly, all negotiations failed because Vladimir Putin kept, harp kept harping on his fundamental position, and that is Russia actually fears for its safety. According to Vladimir Putin, NATO wants to expand right up to its borders, which is unacceptable. So look at it this way. Let's say Mexico. Mexico were to be toppled by a government that is favorable to Russia. And all of a sudden we have Russian military hardware right near Texas. How would we feel? So in other words, people are looking at it through the lens of a new Cold War. However, I prefer to look at it through a different lens. Rather than asking the people of the Ukraine to be pawns of Russia or NATO, why don't we let them decide for themselves their own fate? Why don't we have a plebiscite? Why don't we have an election? Why don't we have a way in which the people of the Ukraine can democratically decide for themselves which way they want to go? Because, of course, nobody wants to be a pawn of the superpowers. And unfortunately, the Ukraine is in an awkward position of being right next to Russia on one hand, but right next to Western Europe on the other hand. And it's being torn by 
by different kinds of entreaties from either side. But like I said, let's not have a new Cold War. Let the people of the Ukraine decide for themselves where they want to go. Personally, I would like it for them to be neutral because they are sitting right at the borderline between NATO and Russia. And that's a very awkward position to be in. But the right of self-determination, I think, is the way to go. Now, of course, the question is, will Russia allow that to happen? I don't know. But I think pressure should be placed on them to make sure that the people's will is satisfied. Also, one byproduct of the invasion is the fact that the security forces in charge of the Chernobyl reactor, well, they're gone. Who's taking over the Chernobyl reactor? Nobody knows. But chances are it's green Russian troops that have no understanding of what a nuclear meltdown really is. You see, many people think the accident is over. Nope, I wish it were. The accident started in 1986, but the nuclear waste is going to be radioactive for thousands of years, not just a few decades. You see, when the core blew up back in 1986, about 30%, about 30% of the core was vaporized and sailed over Europe as a consequence. 30% of the core. That means 70% of the core is still there. In fact, it's still melting its way through the ground. Now, how do we know that? Because we have sensors detecting the radiation coming from the underground site, plus the fact that when it rains, water is a moderator of neutrons. It stimulates the fission process. Therefore, when it rains, you can actually see the needles rise dramatically in response to the water seeping into the nuclear chain reaction. So in other words, the core is still melting. The core is still hot. So what do we do with it? Well, there are several plans that have been talked about. One plan is to put a pan, a metallic or stone pan underneath the reactor to stop it from melting continually underground. Well, that's an idea, but of course that takes money. And it's also rather dangerous to dig that deep. But the point is, at least it's temporarily stable if you monitor it. What happens if the security forces have to leave? And then you have people with no experience running a nuclear power plant in charge of it. So, in other words, this is a danger that people have to realize. That that accident is not over. It's not a dead reactor by any means. Radiation doesn't stop just because you think everything's been buried. No, it's still radioactive. And then the other question is, well, what stopped the accident to begin with? That would help to understand how to stop it now. Believe it or not, it was the Red Air Force that stopped that accident. What happened was, in 1986, there was a steam explosion, hypercriticality accident, also a hydrogen gas explosion that blew the roof right off that reactor. And as a consequence, there was tremendous amount of radiation released, lethal quantities of radiation, but they called out the Red Air Force, specifically helicopters. Helicopters had lead shielding placed underneath 
and they drop borated water on the reactor. Boron is a substance which absorbs neutrons, dampening the nuclear chain reaction. So the Red Air Force dumped borated water on the accident to quell the chain reaction, and then they sandbagged it. They dropped enormous quantities of sand on that reactor, burying it, burying it under a mountain of sand and concrete. So you see, this reactor was not decommissioned normally. No, it was buried by the, by the Red Air Force, and that's why it's still unstable. It was never really decommissioned properly. At Three Mile Island, for example, the core was systematically removed. In fact, the core itself disintegrated because the core was uncovered at Three Mile Island. About 70% of the core was uncovered. And so the core looked like a, quote, bowl of granola, as told to me by one of the nuclear engineers on that site. So at Three Mile Island, we could carefully decommission all the melted fuel. At Chernobyl, the melted fuel is still there. It hasn't been removed hasn't been decommissioned, raw nuclear materials are still melting at Chernobyl. Also, news from the astronomical front. Scientists have been scanning the heavens, searching for messages from alien civilizations. This time they scanned the center of the Milky Way galaxy. The radio telescope was based in Australia they scanned 144 stars near the center of the galaxy. And what did they find? Nothing. This was the fourth major attempt to search for intelligent life in the universe, and they found nothing. Also, the radio telescope did a broader sweep, a sweep of three million stars in the center of the galaxy. And again, they found nothing. Now, what does that mean? Well, perhaps nothing. Perhaps the aliens are out there and they don't want to be noticed. Or perhaps we're not interesting, so they simply don't send signals our way. Or maybe they don't use radio. So some astronomers think that the aliens are way beyond radio. They don't use radio anymore. Everything is done by wires and by laser beams and optical fibers. And so who uses radio? Well, that's one theory. Another theory is that they blew themselves up. I mean, after a point, they will reach the ability to control uranium. They will, of course, understand hydrogen, helium, lithium, boron, going up to carbon, going all the way up the periodic chart till they finally reach uranium. At that point, they now have the ability for planetary destruction. For the first time in their history, they have the ability to commit suicide. Maybe that's what happened. We don't know. However, there are some scientists who seriously believe that maybe the problem is that we have to reach out to them. Perhaps they are out there, but they don't want to make contact with us because we're not interesting or nothing to offer. So therefore, let us reach out to them so that we'll tell them that they are welcome we can share our technology with them, we are peaceful, and we want to engage with a dialogue with an extraterrestrial civilization. I think that is a really bad idea.
I mean, of the bad ideas I've heard, that's one of the worst. Because you see, we don't know who they are. We don't know their intentions. We don't know their goals. We don't know what they want. And just like when Cortez met Montezuma years ago in Mexico, Montezuma made the biggest mistake in ancient history. Montezuma assumed that Cortez was a god. Nope, Cortez was not a god. History tells us that Cortez was a bloodthirsty pirate. But what did Cortez have? He had the horse. The Aztecs had no horse. He had steel weapons. The Aztecs had bronze weapons. Cortez had gunpowder. The Aztecs had, had spears and arrows. Cortez had a written language. The Aztecs had a pictorial language. So on all these fronts, the Aztecs were outgunned, outmanned, and of course, the West brought smallpox as well. And so it was a bad idea for Montezuma to reach out, thinking that these visitors from another world were gods. Nope, that's not the way to go. Also, there have been many bestsellers talking about near-death experiences. All of a sudden, people say that after near-death experiences, they remember that their life flashed in front of them, that they saw a light at the end of the tunnel, and they thought they could leave their body and go to heaven. Well, scientists have been interested in this, and this is what scientists have found. Navy pilots, for example, have to do all sorts of gyrations and pulling out of a deep dive, and they're subject to many G-forces. And when that happens, what do they report? They report seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. Now, why is that? Well, when you put soldiers in an ultra-centrifuge, you can modulate the velocity of the centrifuge just at the point they lose consciousness. And what do they see? A light at the end of the tunnel. Because blood drains from the brain and the the retina of the eye is deprived oxygen. So the rim, the peripheral rim of your field of vision loses blood first. And therefore, your field of vision becomes like a tunnel. In fact, just before you black out, everything reduces to a tunnel of light and you see a light at the end of the tunnel. Also, epileptics, when they have their brain scanned and electrodes placed on their brain, have the sensation of leaving their body. Because when an electrode hits two different parts of the brain, the brain is confused. Where is the signal coming from? And the brain, in order to make sense of this mixed signal, thinks that it's floating, floating outside your body. And now with the University of Toronto, they've been able to actually see what happens at the instant you die. At the University of Toronto, they had a patient who had a heart attack, a heart attack as he was being brain scanned. And they very carefully looked 30 seconds before the incident of death and 30 seconds after the incident of death. And, well, sure enough, the memory centers were stimulated. Now, this, of course, is not proof because he passed away. It was not a near-death experience. He died. But it does show that the brain scan showed activity very similar to what happens 
when you dream. So in other words, he was probably in some kind of dream state at the very instant that he died. Now, unfortunately, because he died, we can't interview him. People that have near-death experiences, we can interview. And we do know that near-death experiences, like the light at the end of the tunnel, is often associated with brain injury of some sort, or perhaps lack of oxygen, which is consistent with what Air Force pilots feel inside an ultra-centrifuge just before they black out. And so perhaps this is an explanation for some of these different kinds of incidences that involve near-death experiences. So it's not that you go to heaven. It's not that you see a doorway to heaven. It's not that you leave your body on the way to heaven. No, it's that the brain is deprived of blood, deprived of oxygen in an accident or under duress, and then the brain gets confused. And so the brain then has these images consistent with going to heaven. Well, moving on, I'd like to dedicate today's comments to Henrietta Leavitt, a woman astronomer who in some sense measured the universe. Now, let me explain. If you see a headlight of a car coming toward you, it's very difficult to judge the distance to that car if it's far away on a cold, dark night. Because a bright light that is very far away can cast an image like very dim light that's very close to you. So that's been one of the great problems of astronomy, how to tell the distance to the stars. For nearby stars, you can use parallax. That is, when you move your, when you move your head left and right, objects in front of you move differentially. The mountains don't move at all, but objects right next to your face move a lot. Therefore, by moving a telescope, you can actually calculate the distance to a nearby star using parallax. But what about going beyond the stars? That was a mystery. Back in those days, people didn't know about Andromeda. Andromeda was a nebula. They didn't know how close it was. Most astronomers thought that the Andromeda Nebula was inside the galaxy. And for that, they thought that the Milky Way was the universe. If you were to talk to an astronomer back in 1920, they would say the universe is the Milky Way galaxy. But then Henrietta Leavitt measured what are called Cepheid variable stars, stars, stars that pulsate slowly in their magnitude of light. And with that, you have a standard candle. A standard candle because the Cepheid variables is a formula that tells you how bright they are versus what part they are in their cycle. A standard candle. That means that if a Cepheid variable is very dim, it means it's far away. If it's bright, it's relatively close. And so you could then calculate the distance to the Andromeda galaxy. Distance was 2 million light years, much greater than the size of the Milky Way, which is about 100,000 light years across. So in other words, Henrietta Leavitt measured the universe, that our galaxy is just one pinpoint of light compared to an ocean of other galaxies. And then, of course, Edwin Hubble measured the rate at which these distant galaxies move away from us, and he found the expanding universe. The universe is expanding. And how do we know that? 
by using a standard candle. And that's the contribution of Henrietta Leavitt. We went from the Dark Ages, thinking that the Milky Way was the universe, to a more scientifically valid position that the universe is huge, gigantic, and that our Milky Way galaxy is nothing but a pinpoint compared to this ocean of other galaxies. And what are these other galaxies doing? They're moving away from us. And so it was a contribution of, well, astronomical proportions that Henrietta Leavitt was able to measure the distance to the universe itself. So in light of International Women's Day, I'd like to dedicate comments today's show to Henrietta Leavitt. And also, I'd like to say a few things about the coronavirus. Some people are saying that, well, we've crossed the Rubicon, we're over the hump, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel, and you can throw away those masks. Well, not so fast. First of all, there could be other mutations lurking out there, just like the Omicron. However, some people are saying that these mutations could be perhaps less dangerous. Let me explain. You see, viruses have to mutate in order to survive. If you are a coronavirus, you're competing with other coronaviruses. Therefore, you want to be as infectious as possible. So evolution prefers germs that are infectious so that these germs can spread their genetic diversity everywhere. However, you don't want to be too lethal because if you're too lethal, you kill the host and you're left without a meal. You're left without a host to propagate your genes. So in other words, evolution prefers diseases which are infectious, but not totally lethal. And so at the beginning, of course, the coronavirus shocked people because it simply jumped out of nowhere. It was infectious and it was dangerous. But then each mutation, it became even more infectious. But Omicron indicates that the latest version is less lethal than in the past. Many people report that when they got the Omicron virus, it was like a cold. It was like the flu. Because in some sense, the flu is also an example of an endemic virus. An endemic virus like the flu doesn't really kill you. It's out there. It's a nuisance. It's potentially dangerous, but we live with it. And so some people are saying that maybe, just maybe, that's the future of this virus to become endemic. We'll simply live with it. People will still die as a consequence of the virus, but it's not going to be a pandemic that floods hospitals with corpses and with coffins. It's not going to be like that. It'll be less lethal because that's the way of the 1918 flu, which killed more people than World War I. That's right. The 1918 flu, some scientists believe, is still with us. The greatest killer of humans in modern history is still with us, but it has mutated to become endemic because of the laws of Darwinian evolution. Well, that's one theory anyway, but my personal attitude is don't throw away your masks yet.
Well, that's it for the first part of exploration. And if you want to know more about exploration, go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org. I have 5 million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. My latest New York Times bestseller is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. Stay tuned now for the second half of exploration when we talk about Henrietta Leavitt, the woman who measured the universe. Welcome. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics, and this is the second half of Exploration. In the second half of Exploration, we're going to talk about the legacy of an unsung hero of astronomy, Henrietta Leavitt. In fact, it's scandalous that this woman has been pretty much ignored in the annals of astronomy, even though she helped to measure the universe itself. You know, back in the 1920s, astronomers asked the question, how big is the universe anyway? Well, they thought that the Milky Way galaxy was the universe. Scientists back then thought that the Milky Way galaxy would be perhaps 100,000 light years across. But that's about it. That's the size of the universe. But you see, Edwin Hubble wanted to measure the distance to the other galaxies or spots of light in the night sky. What were these nebulas that tantalize astronomers? Well, here's the problem. If you have a light source that is very dim but very close to you, it has an image which is identical to a light source which is very far away from you and very bright. So in other words, how do you tell the distance to the stars? Well, you need a standard candle. A standard candle that is the same everywhere in the universe by which you can calibrate how far a star is. And that's what Henrietta Leavitt did. Henrietta Leavitt, by looking at what are called Cepheid variables, was able to come up with a formula that allowed scientists to have a standard candle to measure the distance to the stars. And Edwin Hubble then took that and was able to measure the distance to the Andromeda galaxy which was found to be millions of light years away. And that gave us, eventually, the expanding universe theory, and with Einstein, gave us the Big Bang Theory. So we'll talk about the unsung legacy of a woman in science, Henrietta Leavitt, who measured the distance to the stars. But before we begin, let me just say that I have a new book. It's called The God Equation, The Quest for the Theory of Everything. You know, when I was eight years old, something happened which changed my life. I saw a picture in the newspaper, a picture of a man's desk with the unfinished manuscript opened up, and the caption said, this is the unfinished manuscript of the greatest scientist of our time. Well, I was hooked. I was fascinated. I had to know, well, 
Who is this man and why couldn't he finish this book? What's so hard that the greatest scientist of our time could not finish that book? Well, years later, I found out that that man was called Albert Einstein. And that book, the unfinished book, was his fabled unified field theory. It was to be an equation, perhaps no more than one inch long, that would allow us to, quote, read the mind of God. One equation that would unify all the laws of the universe into a single comprehensive theory, just like E equals MC squared, which is half an inch long, helped to unlock the secret of the energy of the stars. This equation would summarize the entire universe in a simple equation. Well, unfortunately, Einstein failed. In fact, for the past 2,000 years, going back to the Greek philosophers, scientists have asked the question, what does it all mean? Is there a simple paradigm to explain the entire universe? The universe seems so scattered, so random. Is there a cosmic equation, a paradigm? That's the God equation. And today, people think that we have it. We actually have the string, one of the main branches of string theory. So anyway, this book, The God Equation, chronicles 2,000 years of investigation into the nature of matter and energy, going back to the Greeks, and then to the work of Isaac Newton, and then to the work of electricity and magnetism, unraveled by Michael Faraday and James Clerk Maxwell, going up to the quantum theory, the atomic bomb, and the work of Albert Einstein. So find out about this 2,000-year quest, the greatest quest in the history of science to find the God equation. Well, now I'd like to get on with our interview. Today we have with us George Johnson of the New York Times writing about this unsung hero of astronomy, Henrietta Leavitt, the person who helped to measure the scale of the universe. So today, we can measure the scale of the universe, seeing the result of Henry Abbott. We also have the sad story of Jocelyn Bell, a woman graduate student who discovered the pulsar, but it was her thesis advisor who won the Nobel Prize in Physics for the discovery of the pulsar. And we also have the sad story of Vera Rubin. Back in the 1960s, she was one of the first people to point to the fact that the universe seems to be full of something called dark matter, but her result was ignored, and only recently has the theory of dark matter been, been given experimental verification because of all the males who have now jumped into the field. So our special guest today is George Johnson. He's a writer for the New York Times Science Section, also author of many books, including Fire in the Mind, Strange Beauty, and his latest book is called Miss Levitt's Stars the untold story of the woman who discovered how to measure the universe. And it's one of the scandals of science that Henrietta Leavitt never got the credit for measuring the universe. And then in the second half of exploration, I'm going to bring on Michael Lemonick. It's a pre-recorded interview. He is a science writer for Time magazine, and he's going to talk about the latest results from the WMAP satellite, which give us a fine-tuning of the distances to the stars and, in fact, the age of the universe itself. So once again, our first special guest today is George Johnson, author of the new book, Miss Levitt's Stars, the untold story of the woman who discovered how to measure the universe.
The first question for you is, how did you first get interested in science as a youth? I think it must have been a combination of the, uh, the all-about books, these great children's books about different scientific subjects. And, um, and then there was the whole space program, which was just getting off to a start. And I would see these wonderful pictures in Life magazine and the Saturday Evening Post. And sometime around the second grade, I wrote my first book, which was called The Solar System. Oh, really? It was made of, you know, from Big Chief tablet paper and my father's shirt cardboards and crayon <laughs> one page for each, uh-huh. each planet. But, uh, not, not a very penetrating uh, treatment, I don't think. Nothing like David Sobel's new book. Now, you also mentioned that uh, you read science fiction as a child. Yes, later on I did um, junior high school. I really you know, got interested in reading Isaac Asimov and Ray Bradbury and Robert Heinlein and and uh, that was very inspiring. I mean, there's a Swan Heinland story that I, I mentioned in my introduction about the telepathic twins that can... Yeah, I read, that, I read that book, too, as a kid. <laughs> oh, did you? Yeah. Oh. Well, that, that, that just really... The, the thing that really moved me in that was the idea of them um, uh, landing on this planet of a distant star system and looking back and seeing the Earth as a tiny little star that's part of a, a suddenly unfamiliar sky. It's, uh, it's all distorted by this... Uh, different point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I read that science fiction story as a kid, I said that, gee, two twins communicating telepathically faster <laughs> than the speed of light? No, give me a break. You, you were way ahead of me. I, I, <laughs> I bought that hook, line and think. Uh, although I didn't know it was fiction. Now, why did you decide to write a book about Henrietta Leavitt, who, for the most part, is this tiny, tiny little footnote in most astronomy books, but most astronomy books wouldn't be written without her work. Yeah, um, partly out of a, a sense of frustration, because I keep seeing these little footnotes or these kind of two-sentence two glancing mentions of her work, and, and I started to get this picture in my mind of this, um, this woman around the turn of the century, kind of little post-Victorian time, sitting up in some dark room in the Harvard Observatory and in Cambridge and poring over these star charts. And that image kind of fixed itself in my mind, and I thought I would start a book about measuring the universe with Henrietta Leavitt, just kind of to get into the book. But then I just really became very curious about who this person was and what, if anything, we knew about her, and uh, was lucky enough to find some documents with a good researcher in the Harvard archives that helped flesh out her story a little Okay, well, let's now set the stage for exactly why her discoveries are so important. Um, In ancient times, of course, uh, ancient peoples would look up at the night sky, look at the stars, and wonder, how far are they? You can't throw rocks to hit the stars. You can't jump. uh, Even the highest mountaintop, you can't reach the stars. So how did astronomers first begin to estimate the distance to the stars? Yes, and... um they were able to estimate distances to things on Earth using triangulation. And, you know, we do the same thing with modern surveying, where you, you um, look at something from two different vantage points and see that it shifts slightly against the, against the more distant backdrop, and you can use trigonometry to figure out how far it is. And Hipparchus, um, in ancient Greek times, did that with the moon and got a pretty good estimate of the distance. But... Um, the stars are so far away, even the closest star, that you could um, 
measure from two different parts of the Earth, and you wouldn't see, see any shift of the position, so you can't triangulate. So it was a big problem with the stars tiny and close by or enormous and very distant. Now, this process is called parallax, and it's also the reason why we have two eyeballs. <laughs> yeah. So explain to us why we have two eyes rather than one eye, and if you injure one eye, it's quite difficult to judge distances. Yes. Um, you really, if you think about your eyes as forming um, the ends of a base of a triangle, um, you're essentially triangulating unconsciously on things as you um, look outside, like... Right now I'm looking out my office window at this old church across the street, and as I walk around through the window, the church you know, seems to move against the backdrop, and I, my brain is presumably doing some unconscious computations and giving me a sense of how far away that is. So if we were born with one eye, we would always be running into things because we didn't know how far away they were. And that's also how 3D glasses work, right? Your yeah. left eye sees red, your right eye, the other eye sees blue, right. and your your brain puts the red and the blue together to create a three-dimensional image. Yes, right, or those old stereopticons where you have the have the two postcard images that are slightly different, one one for each eye, and it gives you a 3D effect. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the radius of the Earth's orbit around the sun is about 93 million miles or so. Right. And so if you take a picture of the night sky in summertime and a picture of the night sky in wintertime, you've actually moved the telescope over almost 200 million miles, right? Yeah. So you can imagine the, uh, it's like having an eye on each side of the, uh, the solar system. And, and from seeing how some of the stars, the very closest ones, shift a little between um, you know, every six months, um, that was that gave um, astronomers a way to triangulate the distance to the very, very nearest stars, those just a few light years away. But most of the stars by far are so distant that you don't see any parallactic shift at all from uh, season to season. Now, children often say, gee, uh, Daddy, how come the moon is following me? Everywhere <laughs> I move, the moon is following me. But that's because the moon is so far away it has no parallax, and it gives you the optical illusion that it's always above your shoulder, right? Ah, yeah, you know, I'd never actually thought about why that was, but sure, of course. Now, also, the a light beam uh, from the Earth to the sun takes about eight minutes, mm -hmm. so the, the diameter of the Earth's orbit is about 16 minutes by light. But you just mentioned that the nearby stars are tens of light years away that are familiar to us every night. Mm -hmm. And so the parallax must be very small to yeah. the faraway stars, right? Yes, it was just a fraction of a, of a second of a minute of a degree. So it was a very, very delicate measurement and something that uh, wasn't really possible until I think it was the 19th century when they really had uh, equipment good enough to make measurements that finely. Mm -hmm. Now, usually when we judge distances, we use what is called a standard candle. Mm -hmm. If I have a candle that is the same everywhere in a room, and I move the candle anywhere in the room, I can judge distances because uh, the fainter the candle, the farther it is away. Right. It's the same candle. But stars are not standard candles, right? Yeah, we, don't, we had no way of knowing how bright they were inherently. So, you know, again, it's the question of is it very bright and really close to us? I mean, very bright and um, really distant, or is it very dim and really close to us, or somewhere in between? But yeah, without actually going out there in a spaceship and 
measuring it up close, the, you know, it was a big mystery of how we'd know how bright they were so we could calculate their distance. Mm-hmm. Okay, now let's go to the 1920s, uh, where uh, when scientists had, astronomers had a pretty firm idea that the Milky Way galaxy, which we see every night, uh, this swath of light cutting across the night sky, uh, that the Milky Way galaxy was in some sense uh, the entire universe. Uh, yes. Could you explain to us how we viewed the universe in the 1920s? Yes, that was one of the things that I really found most astonishing and that drew me into wanting to write a book about measuring the universe was to realize that as recently as 1920, it was a matter of scholarly scientific debate whether the Milky Way was the whole universe or not. And, um, and if that were true, then something like Andromeda, which we now know to be a neighboring galaxy, would be instead just a very small little little smudge, a little bit of uh, a little bit of stellar dust or something, very very close into Earth, and that's certainly what Harlow Shapley, one of the great astronomers of the 20th century, thought. And in fact, wasn't there a great debate that you mentioned in your book uh, concerning uh, the structure of the universe and how far the stars really are? Yes, in Washington D.C. at the National Academy of Sciences, and Shapley took the position that um, that the Milky Way is the whole universe and that there aren't any other galaxies. And uh, Heber Curtis, another astronomer, took the uh, opposing view that actually the Milky Way was just one of many, many of what uh, Immanuel Kant had called island universes, or that there are many galaxies, and Andromeda was being one of them, and the Magellanic Clouds being a smaller satellite galaxy. So it was a very, very heated debate, and each man really left Washington convinced that he'd won. So how big was the universe to Harold Shapley? Uh, in the early 1920s, he must have had an estimate as to how big the Milky Way galaxy was, and that was the universe. So how big was the universe to him? Well, let's see. Um, you know, I can't really immediately recall the number from Shapley's calculations, but he used... Um, um, used the standard candles that Henrietta Leavitt discovered to kind of measure out the um, Milky Way. and um, But it was just, you know, obviously vastly smaller than the universe that we know about today. Okay, well now let's get into uh, Henrietta Leavitt's work itself. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, where she was born, uh, where she grew up, and how did she wind up as an astronomer at Radcliffe? <laughs> yeah, it was a a uh, very interesting trajectory. She was uh, the daughter of a Congregationalist minister, a uh, very, very Puritan kind of upbringing in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And at some point, her family moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where her father had a church, and later out to the Midwest, to uh, first Ohio and then to uh, Wisconsin, Beloit, Wisconsin, and she followed the family there. And um, Went to, the, the family valued education, and they encouraged her to go to school, and she was in Beloit College in Wisconsin at first, and then later transferred to Radcliffe University back in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, partly because she had relatives there. And um, During school, she had what was really just a general liberal arts education. She had some science classes, and, uh, but mostly humanities. Toward the end of her... Um, 
her time there before she graduated, she took some um, astronomy classes that were taught by astronomers who just walked across the street from the Harvard University Observatory, and that's when she got hooked. And she took a volunteer position at the observatory right after school, I mean right out of school, and this led into um, her job as what they called a computer, someone who was hired to do calculations. Now, even today, uh, grad students have to support themselves, uh, either by part-time jobs or scholarships or what have you. Uh, you mentioned in your book that she came from probably an upper-middle-class background, so she yeah. probably didn't have to worry about a job, right? I think she probably... I, I was never able to, to confirm that, but it seems clear that she must um, have been of somewhat independent means, because there are these letters in which she talks about going off on cruises to Europe and things, and... Uh, this was she, she was being paid twenty five cents an hour, which, if you put it into an inflation calculator, comes out to be about five dollars in today's terms. So, mm-hmm. you know, basically what you'd make working at McDonald's. Okay, so um, I understand that back then, of course, they didn't have calculators, and uh, astronomers relied upon teams of women to yeah. do their calculation for them. Is that right? Yeah, they tended to be women and. Um, it was considered a, a good job to get at the time. It paid better than working in the cotton mills, and of course, for someone like like Henrietta Leavitt, it was um, it was a you know somewhat intellectual occupation. She seemed to to enjoy it, and and a computer at the Harvard Observatories um, wasn't only adding up columns of numbers and doing calculations, but also studying these uh, photographic plates of the sky that had been taken at the Harvard Observatory down in Peru. So uh, it was pretty interesting work, I guess, for someone who um, was interested in astronomy, but then also very, very tedious, very very painstaking work. And there was a certain uh, sense that it was women's work, you know, and the men would uh, make the discoveries and talk about what the stars meant and interpret the data, but the women were there to, to gather it. And precisely what did she do to change the course of astronomy? The um, director of the observatory, Edward Pickering, I mean, he quickly realized that she was, um, you know, very, very good at this and uh, even uh, very overqualified. <laughs> at one point, he gave her a raise to 30 cents an hour. And um, he assigned her a project of looking for variable stars in this um, haze of light called the Magellanic Clouds. Uh, this had been photographed by the Harvard Observatory in Peru because you can only see it, see the clouds in the um, southern hemisphere. They look um, somewhat like, like the Milky Way, except, except round. Um, so Levitt was looking at these plates and asked to look for stars that varied in brightness from um, week to week or month to month, and sometimes even from day to day, and uh, she'd do this by comparing a plate taken, say, in January with one taken in February of the same part of the sky, and um, then would look for stars that had varied in brightness. So she was doing this, and she discovered just a very large number of variable stars within the Magellanic Clouds. So uh, she was curious about how you know what their periods of... Um, pulsation were, so she made a list, and at some point she noticed that there was a correlation, so that the um, the dimmer a star was in the Magellanic Clouds, the dimmer a variable star was in the Magellanic Clouds, 
um, the more rapidly it blinked, and vice versa. And she drew a little graph and showed that there was a definite relationship between the star's rhythm of pulsation and its dimness or brightness. And how could that be used to then uh, establish a standard candle that could be used throughout the universe? Well, essentially, since all these stars were in the Magellanic Cloud, she knew they were roughly the same distance from Earth. So um, it essentially meant that uh, you could measure the rhythm of the pulsation, and from that you could derive the inherent brightness. It would sort of be like um, if an international commission had decreed that a that 50-watt light bulbs blink at a certain rhythm and that 100-watt light bulbs blink at a different rhythm and that there was an exact relationship um, between the uh, dimness and brightness. And then if you looked out your window out onto the town, you could tell by how uh, fast the bulb was blinking how bright it was. And once you knew how bright it really was, you could uh, calculate how far away it was using the the inverse square law. Okay, so what astronomers did was they looked at a variable star, calculated how fast it was blinking. That would then tell you how dim or bright it was. And since these are standard candles, that would tell you the distance to the star. Exactly. Then. And, and they, um, they, they very quickly found that there were um, variable stars within the Milky Way, and um, they were able to use this to get you know, kind of a sense of, um, you know, they had to calibrate the scale, in other words, because they, they could say that, um, well, here's a variable star blinking, you know, at this rate, so it must be um, uh, so many, you know, times further away than that, the second star that's blinking at another rate, but it was all relative distances at that point. So she was aware, therefore, of the importance of her discovery, right? I mean, Yes, it was clear, and that's one thing that was it's kind of been controversial, at least from some things you'd read, you'd almost think that she had just gathered the data and that Edward Pickering or someone had figured out the relationship. But if you really look closely at her paper, um, it's, it's just obvious that uh, she knew exactly what she'd found and, and why it was important. So she published her results, so you could then infer from the publication exactly what she knew and what she didn't know, right? Yes, right. And, you know, there's always a question of, you know, her being being uh, an assistant and a computer and working for Pickering, there's a question of how much input he had into the papers, but it was, you know, right there with her name on it, and that's what counts. Uh Uh-huh. So in some reports I've seen, uh, they sort of treat her as just a computer uh, that just punches out the numbers, but she didn't know what the numbers meant. But you're saying that she actually did know that she had discovered a standard candle. Yeah, there's one part. I mean, her papers are, are very, she was a very reserved, quiet woman, and her papers reflect that. And and toward the end of one of them, she um, she basically mentioned that this would, you know, be a means of uh, of uh, distance measurement, and, and and she says it in such a way that uh, you know it just comes out very clearly, like like aha, you can see the light bulb going off in her head. So wasn't this heralded as a big discovery? Well, um, kind of. You'd think <laughs> um, within astronomy, people quickly realized it was was important, and uh, an astronomer named uh, Ejnar Hertzsprung used, uh, used Henrietta Leavitt's stars to, to, to uh, measure some distances within the Milky Way and, and first started calibrating the yardstick. And then Harlow Shapley, um, who, who, 
went on to become the head of Harvard Observatory, used um, Levitt standard candles to really map out the Milky Way and uh, and just show how great it was. Um, but the, the real big breakthrough came when another astronomer, Edwin Hubble, found um, some of these uh, Cepheid variables, they're called, Levitt stars in the Andromeda Nebula. And once he knew that he had... Uh, had these standard candles there, he could measure how far Andromeda was and show that it was not, as Shapley believed, this little smudge close by, but that it was indeed a huge galaxy. Well, I'm afraid that's it for Exploration. Once again, our special guest today was George Johnson, writing about the pioneering work of a woman in science, Henrietta Levin, the one who taught us how to measure the heavens. And this is Dr. Michio Kaku. Go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org. Find out about my latest book. It's called The God Equation, The Quest for the Theory of Everything. It's about the greatest search in the history of science, a 2,000-year quest to find one equation which summarizes all the laws of the universe. So go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org. I've written four New York Times bestsellers, and I have four and a half million fans on Facebook. Good day. <laughs>